In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad Brothers, sisters, and respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, thank you for joining us in this latest uh, installment in our series on the important topic of the afterlife, the uh, subtopic or the uh, subject for today's lecture will inshallah be uh, the Quranic answers to those who want to deny and who reject the notion those who deny or object to the idea of the resurrection and the afterlife. So very quickly, to recap where we left off. When we began this series, we explained the importance of the topic from a theoretical point of view to make sure that we have a complete worldview. We said the human beings have three main questions. This is one of the questions. Where am I going? And from the other side, it's a very practical issue in the sense that depending on what you believe happens to you after you die, depending on your notion of the afterlife, you're not going to live the same type of life. You're not going to give the same meaning to your actions. So this is from the both the theoretical and the more practical uh, aspects. Then we spent some time looking at the topic of the soul. We said that a human being is made up of not only his, this body, but a component, a dimension, a part of that human being that is non-material. That we refer to as the soul. And so we spent a little bit of time understanding the nature of the soul, as well as some of the arguments to understand that nature. So we said that the soul, at the end, in the conclusion, we said that the soul exists, that it is non-material, that it can exist in isolation or independently of the body, that it can continue to exist even though the body dies. So keeping that in mind, and then we explored a little bit of what the alternative view is, the materialist view is. With all of this in mind, we came back to the topic of the afterlife. We said now we want to look at the topic of the afterlife from reason. If we want to be rational about this, can we establish the necessity, the probability of there being an afterlife or not? The conclusion that we reached after presenting two main arguments, two main rational arguments, is that not only, not only is the afterlife possible, not only will it take place, but that the afterlife and the resurrection that comes with the afterlife is actually necessary. To have a complete system based on everything that we have built and said from the beginning, the afterlife is a necessity. It's not a probability and it's not something that simply will happen. It's, it must happen. It's a necessity that it happens. And we establish this through two main arguments, each one of them with different variants. The first one was the argument from divine wisdom, 
So we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He acts, He acts with purpose. He put in us a type of, He made us into a type of creature and He put in us certain faculties of needs of desires that cannot be fully met in this world. And so if we look at the soul and the nature of the soul and the perfections that the soul can reach in this world, we're going to see that it can never reach its full potential given the limitations of this world. And if we look at our need, our desire for eternal existence, we right away see that it cannot be met in this world. So there needs to be more. There needs to be another world where what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in us is actually attainable. Otherwise, the conclusion is that Allah is not wise. Allah is not effective or efficient. He acts without purpose. He put a desire in us and He did not give us a means to fulfilling that desire. So that was the argument from wisdom in, in summary. The argument from justice, and we presented multiple variants of this, but in short we said that if we look at the world in which we live, no one would say that this is a fair world, this is a just world. And we have already established that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just. Under the topic of divine justice, we spent a lot of time talking about the justice of Allah, the fairness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And yet when we look at this world, we see that it's not a fair world. Those who do good often end up in, with very bad outcomes, and those who do bad may end up in very good outcomes. And then if you look at the quantity and quality of the good that a human being can do and the bad, you see that there's nothing in this world that can be given to certain people because of how much good or how much bad they have done. So someone who, let's say, sacrifices themselves to rescue 200 people, how do you reward this person? It's impossible to reward them in this world. And the opposite. If someone has caused war and destruction and killing and harm to tens or hundreds or thousands or millions of people, how do you punish them? They have one life, it's limited. What do you do to give them their just reward or their just punishment? It's impossible. And so if you only look at this world, you see that it's too limited to be able to say, we are going to use what's available to us in this world to be just, to be fair, to the actions of every human being. It's simply impossible. These are some of the main points that we raised when we talked about divine wisdom and divine justice. And the conclusion, therefore, there has to be another world in which that divine justice is reestablished and the divine wisdom is clear to everyone. Okay? This was the rational argumentation. And then we moved into the scriptural or the revelation. And as we said, we don't have time to go into the narrations. We want to keep this light and, and quick as a series. So we're concentrating on the Holy Quran. We want to look at what the Quran actually says about the topic of the afterlife. So we said this is going to be a sort of an excursion in the verses of the Quran, which we lumped into four or five big categories. The first category has to do with the verses in which the Holy Quran basically says, you as a human being, if you want to have an important position on anything, you need to 
rely on a set of arguments, of convincing logic, evidence that you use to tell me, the Holy Quran says, present to me your argument. Explain to me why you chose this position. So this is in general, the Quran applies this to everything that is of importance in the world as you live as a human being and specifically to the afterlife. When we come to the afterlife, we see the Holy Quran saying, those who deny, what is your proof that there is no afterlife? And the bottom line is, there is no proof. Okay, so the Quran first established that they have no weapon, they have no, no argument that they can use. That's one. Two, the Holy Quran says, okay, maybe the best you got is that you want to claim that this is highly improbable, unlikely. And therefore, I'm going to use another set of verses to show you that that which you consider to be highly unlikely, highly improbable, is actually very likely. Not only is it likely, it's happening all around you all the time. And there are enough phenomena around you and that you would have heard about that should convince you that that which you consider so unlikely is actually not unlikely at all. And so we went through a number of examples, starting from the natural world, the cycle of life and death that we notice in the plant world, in the animal world, in ourselves, the notion or the, the phenomena or the experience of sleep and how the Holy Quran presents, his, presents it as a type of death. And I, I was going to say, you know, a mini death or a type of uh, a like death, but the Holy Quran says it is death. You are actually letting go of your soul or your soul is being recaptured and then given back to you every time you sleep. Okay? And then the Holy Quran went into a few more examples. So it told us, for instance, about the sleepers of the cave. It told us about Prophet Isaiah or the man who was mentioned in Surah Al-Baqarah who was put to death for 100 years and then brought back to life so that he may witness, so that he may witness how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes about resurrecting the dead. Or how Prophet Ibrahim salam was granted the prayer of being shown, being able to experience the ability to resurrect the birds that he put on the mountain tops in Surah Al-Baqarah again. And then we saw that in other examples, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us about Prophet Isa salam, for instance, when he raises people back from the dead as one of the examples of his miracles and how Bani Israel were put to death, the group of Prophet Musa salam, were put to death and then brought back to life. Or in the story of the man who was killed unjustly, he was brought back to life through the cow mentioned in Surah Al-Baqarah. And so that he, he explains how he was killed unjustly and who killed him and why. And then he goes back to his state of death. So all of that to say, the Holy Quran has presented various examples to show that this has happened, especially people around the Holy Prophet. They would have heard about some of those stories. The Quran comes to reconfirm these in addition to everything happening around us in our world. We said that the Holy Quran moves to the next phase and says, okay, so now we've established that you have no proof for rejecting the afterlife. The most that you could say is that it's unlikely. So now I've shown you that it's not unlikely. Now you may still have some objections left. So inshallah today, we're going to go through 
again, lumped at a very high level. Some of the objections that people may have against the idea of resurrection and the afterlife and how the Holy Quran answers them. And then with that, we can move to, as we said, when the Holy Quran counterattacks. So inshallah, the next times we'll meet, maybe not the next time, but the time after, when we meet, we go into the arguments that the Holy Quran is going to present itself. Some of it based on what we've already presented, but from a Quranic angle, and some of it entirely new. Okay, so this is kind of the sequencing of what we're presenting now. So as we said, we are in the third category of verses. Now the ones where the Holy Quran is going to answer the objections of those who want to deny. Because in case there is still some objection left. Yes, I have no argument. I have no evidence that there is no afterlife. Okay, I understand that it's not unlikely. But I still have some doubts about some of the questions. Some of the aspects, some of the dimensions of the resurrection of the afterlife. So the Holy Quran is going to answer those. And as we said, this is going, we saw how the Holy Quran progresses from the possibility. So first by removing the idea that there is no proof. You remove, you take away the weapon, you take away the argument. There is no argument. So you establish that. This, it means now the possibility is open. Because you have no argument to prove otherwise, then you have to be open to the possibility. We're going from possibility all the way to necessity, as we presented in the logical, rational arguments. Now we're doing the same thing with the scriptural or, or revelation argument. So, the big objections that we're presenting, they fall in four categories for today, to, to keep it simple. The first one is the objection that if an entity exists and then stops existing, how can it come back to life? Or, sorry, how can it come back into existence? That's one. The second objection is if you are, as a human being, in this body, and this body has decomposed, how can life be brought back into it? The third objection has to do with divine power. And the fourth objection has to do with divine knowledge. Okay, so this is in short what we're presenting. And again, we're trying to keep it short and quick and simple. So, the first objection, as we said, is the re-existence. So something that existed, now is going to exist again. The re-existence of the annihilated. And I intentionally wrote annihilated or non-existent. What are we talking about here? So I want you to think a little bit more abstractly, more philosophically. You have an entity that exists. You have something that exists. And then it completely ceases to exist. It's no longer there. Is it possible to return that entity back into existence? That's a question. And are we still talking about the same entity if it ceased to exist? Okay, that's the objection. It's a little bit more complicated than that. That's my best way to present it. Okay. So, where does this come from? Where does the issue come from? This objection, what gives rise to this objection? 
So before I answer it, I wanted to spend time linking it back to two topics, both of which we've already addressed. One of them, inshallah, will address more. The topic of death and the topic of a human being. Depending on how you understand death and depending on how you understand what a human being is, you may or may not ask this question. How? If in your understanding of death, death equals non-existence, moving from existing to non-existing, being annihilated completely from existence, then maybe you're allowed to ask this question. From the other side, if in your understanding of a human being, and again linked to death, you think that a human being moves from existing to non-existence just because they have died, in other words, just because their body has died, then you're allowed to ask this question. Otherwise, if you are like us, we do not believe that death is moving into non-existence, nor do we believe that when a human being dies, it means they cease to exist, then this question does not make sense. This question has nothing to do with the afterlife or resurrection. It might be a really cool, interesting question to examine philosophically, but this is not what we're claiming. When we say there's an afterlife, when we say that we're going to be resurrected, we never claimed that human beings existed, were an entity that existed, and then it ceased to exist. We never said that. We said human beings are entities made up of two parts, a body and a soul. The body stops working and the human being dies. The soul continues. The soul does not die and does not cease to exist. And the soul is actually who you are, not your body. So if those points are well understood, when death happens, death is simply in interpreted or understood as moving from one reality to another, one world to another. But there's no annihilation. Nothing stops existing. Whatever existed before still exists after. The body still exists, it's just not functional. And it decomposes, but it's still there. The soul, nothing happens to it. It just moves to another world. So if you keep this in mind, then the answer is simple. It's just, you have to be careful not getting tricked by the question that death equals non-existence. Now, that's if you limit it to the materialist point of view, which we have said again and again, does not work for all the reasons that we've discussed. So, the answer to this objection is something one that we have already answered. That's why it's here, so that you go back to the previous lessons. And then the whole point of this lesson is to establish those answers from the Holy Qur'an. And so even from the Holy Qur'an, we've already established this. So the example, this is one example, there are many. If you go to this verse in the Holy Qur'an, chapter 32, verse 10, verses 10 and 11, it says, They say, 
when we have been lost in the dust or in the earth or in the soil, so we've died and our bodies now are underground, shall we be indeed created anew? And so what I want you to focus on is the we. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, they say, when we have died, shall, shall we be indeed created anew? And the Quran answers, rather, they disbelieve in the encounter with their Lord. Okay? We're not going to comment on that. We did in the past. Say, you will be taken back. So here is, this is where I want you to concentrate on when they say we and how the whole Quran answers them. If your body has decomposed, it's dead and decomposed underground. So what is the you? You have died and yet you are being taken back completely, fully. That's Tawafi, when the angel of death takes you back completely. What is he taking back? The body? No. Body is in underground. So the you is the answer. The key is in the you. Who are you? Are you the body or are you the soul? You are being referred to as that which the Holy Quran is taking, is saying the angel takes back, takes back completely. The tawafi, which is your soul. And so if you keep this in mind, and you go back to the objection, the objection is, when you have ceased to exist, how can you be brought back into existence? You have not ceased to exist. You have not ceased to exist. Your body is underground, and your soul was taken by the angel of death, and it's still there. So that objection does not work. Okay, that's why I said, if you want to discuss that, in general, as a philosophical topic, if something ceases to exist, can it be brought back? And is, can we still say that it's the same thing or not? That's, that's fine. But it has nothing to do with resurrection. It has nothing to do with the afterlife. Okay? Say so you will be taken back or be claimed by the angel of death who has been charged with you, then you will be brought back to your Lord. Again, it's you who is brought back, and that is your soul, but that's a reference to the afterlife. So we're going to leave that aside. The second objection. So the second objection is related to life. The first one was related to existence. This one has to do with life. If you look at how human beings come to be in this world, you see that it doesn't happen in one step, in one shot. There are a number of premises, a number of things that have to happen, factors, criteria, ingredients, timing, all of it has to happen in a certain way and over time so that that human being becomes a human being. So if a human being, in order to become who they are, requires all these steps and all this time then how can we accept that suddenly, in one shot, you are telling us in the afterlife, the human being is just going to come up and they will be already a human being. That's the issue. So here the question, the first one had to do with, how do you accept existence? And the second one, how do you accept life? 
How can you accept that life happens in one shot when we know that the manner in which life happens, it happens progressively. There are many steps, it happens over time, and it has a lot of ingredients that have to come, all of them together in a certain way at a certain time and over time for it to happen. The first thing that has to do with this objection is that we have to distinguish between a logical impossibility and something that is just very unlikely. If I told you, for instance, I saw a human being flying, that's one statement, and I tell you one plus one equals five, that's another statement. There is a very big difference between rejecting the first one and rejecting the second one. The second statement, one plus one equals five, is a logical impossibility. The first one, I saw a human being flying, it's, well, based on everything we know, a human being shouldn't fly. Is it logically impossible? No, it's not logically impossible. But you have to show me, you have to convince me, because it goes against everything I know about a human being. But maybe someone is doing it. I need to see, I need to know. But it's not a logical impossibility. So, to start with the question, because that puts us in a completely different category, if what they're claiming is a logical impossibility, is the objection that for a human being to exist in one shot, is it a logical impossibility? Or is it just highly improbable, based on what you know? It's a second. There is no logical impossibility that a human being exists in one shot. Okay, so now we move to the second category. What's the issue? We agree that, based on everything we know, yes, human beings should exist only when all of the ingredients come together and it takes time and there are steps and criteria and conditions and so on and so forth. No issue with that. But even that does not tell us the full story. Because this is relying entirely on the natural order of things. But as we have already seen, there is more than just the natural order of things in this world. And these are the examples of the stories that the Holy Quran has given us. So not to add to the ones we've already seen, just so that we recycle them, that some of the stories that we saw, for instance, are the, the example of the story of the sleepers of the cave. People who sleep for 300 plus 9 years, and then they wake up. And then they go back to sleep. Indefinitely. That's certainly breaking away with the normal natural order of things. Or the story, for instance, of how Prophet Ibrahim resurrected the birds. Or how Prophet Isaiah was put to, to death for 100 years and then brought back to life to witness how his mule, his donkey was bring, uh, being brought back to life. Or the story of Bani Israel, the 70 men who went with Prophet Musa who were put to death and then Allah brought them back to life. Or to give more examples we didn't want to add too many more. But look at some of the stories of the prophets. Look at their birth. The births, for instance, of the sons of Prophet Ibrahim 
who was clearly past the age of giving birth. And his wife was clearly past the age of giving birth. The same thing with Prophet Zechariah, who himself tells Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm too old and my wife is too old. But if you would still give me someone to represent me and my lineage. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants him Yahya John the Baptist. Or, you know, if we continue with the birth of or the coming into existence of Prophet Adam or Prophet Isa So, while we accept that there is a natural order that is generally speaking the way in which things happen, there is also and always the power of God and alternatives taking place, some of which we know, many of which we probably don't know. So the Holy Quran gives us these reminders. It gives us these indications that there is more than just the material, natural order of things. And you have to keep that always in mind so that you don't lose sight of the fact that all of this is within the power of God. Right? We've talked about all of this. So if you keep this in mind and you go back to the objection, the objection starts looking a lot weaker. That in order to exist, you have to have all the ingredients and you have to have the time and you have to have the conditions and the steps and the, that's true under normal circumstances. But then Prophet Isa was born without a father. And Prophet Adam was born without a father or a mother. So maybe the conditions are not always 100% what we think they need to be. So this is just to make something that you're, you want to impose on us as an absolute, it's actually relative. Okay, there's a lot more relativity to the question than the way the objection is posed. The second point related to this objection is that you are trying to impose your understanding of the laws of this world on the next world. And inshallah we're going to go into a lot more detail. We're going to have some lectures where we're going to talk about the characteristics of the next world. But for the time being, all we'll, all we'll say for now is there's definitely a difference between this dimension, this reality that we call the world, and the afterlife, which clearly has its own laws, its own principles that govern it. And so you can't take things for granted and consider something that you think is a law here, and even that is probably incomplete, otherwise all of these miracles would not be happening. You can't take that and impose it on the afterlife. Okay, that's two. The third thing, the third point related to this objection is that it's clearly once again stemming from materialism. You are limiting everything to your materialist understanding of what a human being is, how a human being comes to be, and whether or not you know all the ingredients and all the check boxes are there for that body to come back the way it is or the way it was created the first time. When we keep repeating and saying, what really matters is the soul. And the soul has never ceased to exist. And who you truly are is the soul. Now if you add a body to that soul in the afterlife, that's great. And that's what we claim. 
and we have many ways of showing that. And inshallah, we'll talk more about about this maybe next lecture. We'll talk about the the body that may be given to us in the afterlife. But generally speaking, you cannot impose the things you know about this world and a materialist worldview of what you think you know about this world on the afterlife or on the human being. Okay? So that's how we get rid of, of this second objection. I think it's clear enough. The third objection is that they say for something like resurrection and something like an afterlife to take place, you need a fantastic, unbelievable power. You're talking about things that go way beyond even what we can imagine. For this whole world to end and then a new world to begin and every human being to be brought back all at once to be judged fully based on every deed and every intention and then to get that reward or punishment eternally that's a an incredible power so they don't want to concede that such a power could ever exist that's the bottom line so our claim our counter claim to this is simply that if you have been following along from the beginning it just happens to be the type of power we think our God has. And we showed it. And so here, once again, what we're trying to do is to establish this from, not reason, but from the Holy Quran. So, let's go through some of the verses of the Quran to see what it says about this. And this is as, once again, it's not us kind of imposing on the Holy Quran the objection. No, no, this is actually the objection, and we'll see how the Holy Quran answers it. So there is once again a logic to this, but we don't have time to kind of give too many details, otherwise we need too many lectures. So we're not going to repeat this, the things that we have said about the divine power when we talked about the attribute of power, in the case of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is one level, level one, which is if you understand that there is a God that exists, then this power comes with that God. So this is more of a theoretical understanding. Then added to that, and this is a part of not repeating because that's the one we spent most time on. Added to that, now you get to understand it in a little bit more, with a little bit more experience. And this is the insistence of the Holy Quran to study and examine and contemplate and ponder the world in which you live. To understand the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so this is also the answer to this objection. So if we want to put aside, you should start by the theoretical points that we've established, that if there's a necessary being, that then he is also all-powerful. That's one. Two, let's look at the type of world we have. What kind of creator, what kind of power do you need to create this type of world? That's the second answer. The third answer is going to be on the next slide. So for this one, let's look at these verses. What type of power do you need to create the type of world we have? So here, in short, you study the design and you study the complexity of the world. 
So verse 46, chapter 46, verse 33 says, Do they not see that Allah who created the heavens and the earth and who was not tired, who was not wearied, fatigued, exhausted with their creation, do they not see that he is able to give life to the dead? So clearly, there is here layers in this verse. The first layer, the clear one is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is answering directly their question by saying that if he was able to create all of this, everything that you see and everything you understand, and inshallah today we understand this a lot more than they did 2,000 or 1,500 years ago. Do you not see that if he was able to create all of this and it did not weary him, it did not fatigue him, it did not drive him to the point where he's not able to do anything else, this was easy for him, then he can bring those who died back from the dead. As simple as that. We can add another layer to this and say it's as though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying the reason why he created the world in this way is so that you realize his power and you realize that he is also able to bring you back from the dead. That's the second layer. Right? So, inshallah, you see it in the verse. Do they not see that Allah, who created the heavens and the earth, and who was not fatigued with their creation, is able to give life to the dead? So, in this verse, yes, indeed, he has power over all things. This verse alone should be an answer to, should be a sufficient answer to this objection, but let's look at a couple more verses. So the verse after that starts in the same way, but it adds, so do they, do they not see that Allah, who created the heavens and the earth, is able to create the like of them? So the like of them could be, and the Quran uses this expression in many places, it could be the like of the heavens and the earth, or the like of them, these people. In other words, bring them back. He has appointed for them a term, so there's a timeline, there's a deadline, there's an ultimate end to everything, including these people. He has appointed for them a term in which there is no doubt. Yet, the wrongdoers are only intent on ingratitude. They reject. Third verse, 37-11. So this is in Surah Al-Safat. In Surah Al-Safat, I put this here because there's a logic and we can't go through the verses now for it. But it's very interesting because the verse talks about a number of things, a number of creatures, different types of entities. The verses of Surah Al-Safat start by talking about angels. It starts giving descriptions of angels. And then it talks about jinn and how they used to climb to the heavens and to listen. And now they can't. Okay? And then it talks about the creation of the heavens. And then after all of these mentions, a verse in verse 11 says, so ask them, is their creation more prodigious, more difficult, or that of the other creatures that we have created? So this is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is where you see the logic in the verses. The verses did not only talk about, you know, you can't look just at the verse right before. Look from the beginning of the surah, now we're at verse 11, you'll see there's already mention of three different types of creatures before mentioning human beings. 
There's a mention of angels. There's a mention of jinn. There's a mention of heavens. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, how arrogant are they that they think that they are the most prodigious, the most difficult. Have they not thought about those other creatures who created them? So the verse says, so ask them, is their creation more prodigious or that of the other creatures that we have created? Indeed, we created them from a vis viscous clay. So again, you know, to remind the human being that the truth is, they're not really anything astounding or awe-inspiring. Compare the creation of a human being to, let's say, looking at the universe with its stars and its planets and its galaxies, for instance, or looking at the abilities of jinn, which the Arabs really believed in, or looking at the abilities of an angel. So if you consider from that point of view, well, certainly you can see that you're nothing really that special. And so for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be able to bring you back should really not be that difficult for Him. If your only measure is you and you are so difficult to create, look at other creatures and you'll see the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? That's the idea. And then in verse 79, 27, Surah Al-Nazi'at, is it you whose creation is more prodigious or more difficult or the sky which he has built? Okay, so this summarizes kind of the, the previous point. Now, the last point, so we said two, we've already made two points about the power. The first one is, we said in theory, just understanding the necessary being and the power that they have, the infinite absolute power over all things, the absolute dominion, the absolute sovereignty, means absolute power over all things. That's theoretical. The second one is, you understand the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through looking at the world, looking at the complexity, the sophistication, the design, the beauty of what has been created and how it all fits together. And we've talked about all of that. Here, the Quran is adding one more argument to this. So, all of this is valid, but let's add one more point, which is your resurrection and your afterlife means that he's just recreating something he's already created. He's just bringing you back to life. It should have been, if there was anything too difficult for him to do, it would have been to create you in the first place. Not to bring you back after he's already created, after he's already done it once. So this is the argument that many of the verses of the Qur'an do. And again, I would argue that this is only used by the Qur'an for argument's sake. The Qur'an is basically going along with their argument and showing them that even with their logic, it does not work. But the truth is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not recreating something that has ceased to exist. That which they are claiming has ceased to exist and Allah has to recreate it is not the case. We have continued to exist. We're just being re-given a body, right? That's the, the, the gist of everything that's happening. It's not more complicated than that. So some verses in the Quran that have to do with this. The first one in Surah Al-Isra, 49.51, they say what? When we have become bones of dust, shall we really be raised in a new creation? Say, should you be stones or iron or a creature more fantastic to your minds? 
that they will say, who will cause us to return? Say, he who created you the first time. So this is the last argument related to the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the resurrection, that if he was able to create you the first time, why would you think that it's difficult for him to create you the second time? Your objection should have been about the first time. But since you already exist, that's it. Your point is moot. They will then wag their head or lower their head towards you and say, when will this be? So they change the, the, the question. They have nothing else to say. Say, maybe it will be quite soon. So in verse uh, 19, 20, chapter 29, have they not seen how Allah subhanahu wa originates the creation? So have they not thought about how Allah subhanahu wa brings things into existence in the first place? Then he brings it back or he reproduces it. So this is something you witness. This is bringing us back to the idea of life and death. That is indeed easy for Allah. Say, travel over the land and then observe how he has originated the creation. And this is bringing us back to that second layer. So at one level, the Quran is bringing attention to an argument. You can use this as an argument, you can use that as an argument. But at a second level, the Holy Quran is saying Allah has created the world in this manner specifically so that you understand His power. Specifically so that you do not doubt that you will be brought back and there is a resurrection and an afterlife. Okay? Travel over the land and then observe how he has originated the creation, then Allah shall bring about the origination of the hereafter. So in the same manner that he's created you in the first time, he's going to recreate you the second time. Indeed, Allah has power over all things. 50-15. Were we exhausted, or were we, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about himself. He asks, were we incapacitated, were we fatigued, were we tired by the first creation? Rather, they are in doubt about a new creation. Okay? Certainly you have known the first, so you should know. Certainly you should know. Certainly you have known the first creation. Then why do you not take admonition? In 3681, is not he who created the heavens and the earth, Surah Yasin, is, he, is not he who created the heavens and the earth able to create the like of them? And again here, that could be the heavens and the earth or these people. Yes, indeed, he is the supreme creator, the all-knowing. And then 86, 5 to 8. So let the human being consider from what he was created. He was created from an effusing fluid, which issues from between the loins and the breastbones. Surely he is able to bring him back to life after death. So once again, a reminder that, you know, the human being should not be so arrogant to think that he is so special and so big and so difficult to bring into existence. Okay? And then in 3027, it is he who begins the process of creation, then repeats it, or he brings it back, and for him it is easier. And so this is the, the last point, as we said. The first is more theoretical, understanding the nature of the power of the Creator. The second one is studying the world, so it's a little bit more practical, applicable, and you understand that power through the complexity, the sophistication that you see in the world. And this last point, which is, and if it existed once, it can certainly exist a second time, and it's a lot easier. Okay? So these are the three layers for the 
divine power. The last point, so I think with that one, since inshallah the point is well understood, we don't need to spend this much time on the last objection, which follows the same pattern. So we'll go over it very quickly. The pattern is your claim that there's a resurrection and your claim that there's an afterlife means that this creator has this fantastic, unbelievable, incredible knowledge. So once again, we'd say, yeah, it just happens to be the type of creator we believe in. He does have that type of knowledge. So it's not an issue. Okay? And then we would add to this. The first one is a lot of this stems from their projection of their own way of thinking or their own knowledge or how a human being acquires knowledge and has knowledge. And they want to impose that on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's one of the problems. And I would argue that this first verse gives us a glimpse of that. When Musa came to Fir'aun and he told him about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Fir'aun asked Prophet Musa what then is the condition of the previous generations? When he told him, we're all going to die, we're going to God and he's going to judge us, so we have to do good here, you have to do good. If you do bad, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to judge you and punish you. So Fir'aun asks, what is then the condition of the previous generations? So many people, so many generations, so many civilizations have died. Okay? So, what do we do with all of them? And Moses replied, the knowledge of those generations is with my Lord duly recorded. My Lord never errs, never makes a mistake, nor forgets. So, why would Moses, why would Pharaoh object like this? He's projecting his own way after claiming to those people that he is their Lord, he is their Supreme Lord from Bukumul A'la. He says about himself, but of course, when he thinks about himself, would he be able to have that type of ability to record and remember and know? So he does not want to grant that to another God. So the limitation is there in your inability to just accept the logical conclusion of what type of God he is. And then the last verse that I wanted to, to provide, I think is very powerful in that it combines the answer to both objections. The previous one, which is the objection against the power of God, and, and the one with, or against the knowledge of God. So you have both in the same. Does a human being not see that we created him from a drop of seminal fluid? And behold, he is openly disputing with us. Or, and behold, he is a manifest adversary. Allah subhanahu wa says, the human being kind of does not remember, does not keep in mind what he started from. And now that he, is, he has the ability to, he stands before us defying us, objecting to us, arguing. Allah subhanahu wa says, he's arguing with me. Okay, so he says, he is khasimun mubin. Khasim is arguing. Right? Umubin is, uh, with, you know, he thinks that he's very eloquent and clear and manifest in the way that he explains his points. So suddenly now, Allah subhanahu wa says, the human being forgets what he was. And behold, now he's standing and defying me. And he drew a comparison to us. So Allah subhanahu wa says, he's giving me an example, or he's giving me, a, he's making a point forgetting his own creation. 
and he drew a comparison for us, forgetting his own creation. He says, who shall ever revive the bones when they have completely decayed? So Allah SWT answers him, this is what you have forgotten, human being. Say, he will give them life who created them the first time and created you the first time. But you forget about yourself. So he's saying, you know, know your place before you start defying and objecting and rejecting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what his prophet is bringing to you. For he is the knower of every kind of creation. So here you see the combination of both power and knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's all we had as points. A couple of maybe last remarks before we, we close. The first one is, um, inshallah, to those of you who have been following along from the beginning, that you see the logical sequence and the importance, for instance, of having understood the divine attributes. Sometimes it may seem like it's a very abstract or theoretical discussion, but as we go along, we see how it's actually, it has very concrete applications to everything else we need to discuss later, right? So everything we're saying now is based on the divine attributes, for instance, that we presented and discussed at length, right? And I think everything that we have said until now has been built in that way. And for those who have not been following along from the beginning, maybe this is a reminder and an incentive and an encouragement to make sure that you don't skip out, you don't miss out on those parts. Spend a little bit of time and be patient so that you build your belief system the right way from the beginning. Start with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and understand Him and His attributes, move to prophethood and revelation and religion, and then the details of religion, and then to the afterlife. And inshallah, our series provides this. But no matter how you do it, you need to do it in this sequence, and then there are no gaps and there are no contradictions. The uh, remarks that I wanted to finish with is, um, so we said now we are going through the verses of the Holy Quran. So the next phase, the next verses of the Holy Quran should be now the Holy Quran goes on the attack. It counterattacks with its own arguments. Before we do that, because we're not going to have a chance to do it later, it won't fit in the logic. The next lecture, we're going to add other objections. Maybe ones that are not directly addressed by the Holy Quran because they appeared later. In, in you know theological schools and philosophers and others all of the answers that we gave they are sufficient for anything that anyone can throw against the idea of resurrection and but sometimes you need to be shown how to do it or where the issue is or where the objection is so inshallah the next time we meet we're going to go through all of the main objections against the idea of the resurrection of the afterlife as we find them in all the classic works of theology there's probably seven to ten of them. We'll summarize them and present them quickly. And then with that, you will feel, inshallah, comfortable with the topic of the afterlife resurrection with all of the kind of points, counterpoints to establish and, and know that your, you know, your belief in this issue is complete and there are no issues with it. There were, we're not leaving anything to, to chance or, or no, no rock unturned, as they say. And the other point is that all of this is entirely, until now, as you have probably observed, 
noticed it's all based on the Holy Quran. We have not mentioned narrations. And the reason is because we're going very fast. We're going just after the things that are the most important. Inshallah, there will come a time. We'll dedicate the time because it's, it's a fascinating, beautiful, and very, very important topic to spend some time looking at what the narrations say about all of this. And they give a completely different flavor. And inshallah, we'll keep all of this in mind when we have a chance to talk about more you know, ethical, akhlaq, morals, uh, topics, we'll bring a lot more of those narrations into the equation. And with all of this, we'll stop here, inshallah. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibina tahirin. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad So if there are any questions, concerns, comments, I thought we'd go a little bit faster today, but we still took uh, the full hour. If you have any questions or concerns, please go ahead. There is one uh, chat. <clears throat> it's an excellent question. So the question is, if I commit a sin, I'm going to feel too ashamed to face God in dua or prayer, which leads me to further away from His grace. Do you have any advice? So. This is an extremely, extremely, first of all, extremely honest question. And you're, of course, not the only one. We all feel this and we all go through this. And it's not something new. This is something that happened again and again in the time of the Holy Prophet. It happened in the time of Muhammad and others. And there are practical ways to deal with this, and there are theoretical ways to deal with this. And inshallah, maybe we can, I think it's a very important topic. We should probably dedicate a, at least a lecture to it. But very quickly, the idea that because I commit a sin, therefore I feel ashamed, first of all, keep in mind that that is actually something commendable. You need to be respecting yourself and loving yourself for feeling that shame. That means that you are still sensitive to sinning and understanding how you fit in and understanding your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is something that you should never lose. This is what gives you infallibility. That's one. Two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again and again, why does He say in the Holy Quran that He loves those who constantly ask for forgiveness. It's not that you commit a sin and you ask for forgiveness and that's it. If you look at the construction of the words in Arabic, those who are asking forgiveness, it's those who repeatedly or always ask for forgiveness. Why? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, come back to me. It doesn't matter after how many times. Keep coming back to me. I love you for coming back to me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says those words. I'm not making up the words. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself says, When he says that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, He loves those who keep coming back to him. Okay? So keep that in mind. That's two. The third point to keep in mind. That you feel ashamed, as we said, in itself, is something that, inshallah, stays with you. This is what will guard you. And this is what will keep you making, becoming better and improving. 
very important. But the next step is it cannot lead you to turn away from Allah, to despair from Allah, to think that your sin is too big, that you feel so much shame that you decide to turn away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what the Holy Quran refers to as the hopelessness or despair, qunut. And there are many, many narrations that we have, and there are many verses of the Quran that talk about this. This is one of the cardinal or great sins that you despair from the mercy of Allah. And this is kind of what's implied in the question. That your shame is so that you think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may no longer grant you mercy, so you turn away. And there is a narration in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we have a, a story with the Holy Prophet, for instance. There are many of these. There's a story with the Holy Prophet in which there's a man who decided that he committed some horrible sins. And inshallah, one day we'll go into the full discussion of that story. And basically he left his community and he attached himself, he chained himself with some chains around the tree outside of the city. And finally when the Holy Prophet sent a few people to go talk to him and they were not able to convince him to leave and he was just going to stay there until he dies or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends him some sign, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Holy Prophet himself went to talk to him. And to me, that's the key. That's the only portion of the story that I wanted to talk about now. The Holy Prophet went and asked him. He would tell him, are your sins greater or? He tells him, are your sins greater or the mountains? Are your sins greater or the rain? Are your sins greater? Or? And he keeps saying, no, my sins are greater than that. And at the end, the Holy Prophet asked him, are your sins greater or Allah? And at the end, this is what we need to think about. Yes, we have horrible, great, shameful sins. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, my door is open. Salam, he reminds us in many of his adayah, in many of his invocations in the Sahih al-Sajadiyya, he tells when he talks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and so he's teaching us how to talk and how to think, about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he tells them, you are the one who opened a door to your servants, which you called a tawbah, which you called forgiveness. And you said, if you ask my forgiveness, I will give it to you. So the idea or the feeling that you get because you have sinned and you feel ashamed is one, perfectly normal, two, it's commendable and it's actually something you can use to better yourself. And inshallah, you never lose that feeling. Because the alternative is that you commit the sin and you do not feel the shame. And then to me, that's a lot more dangerous. It means that you're starting to lose sensitivity. It means that you can slide into a lot more sinning. So you have to be very careful. If you start committing a sin and you no longer feel that shame, you need to re-examine yourself and see why is it that you're not feeling anything when you should be feeling shame, but not enough to turn away from Allah. You should go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
in that state of shamefulness, return to Allah. That's when it counts. And when you ask for repentance, be sincere. Even if you commit the sin again, that's okay. When the moment comes that you ask for repentance, be sincere in that you intend never to repeat that sin. Inshallah, we'll talk more about this topic of asking forgiveness. It's actually part of the series on the afterlife towards the end. We wanted to talk about the idea of when you commit an act, a good act or a bad act, then what do you do with notions such as shafa'ah, intercession, or notions such as istighfar and tawbah? If we said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fair and just, and every good thing that you do, you receive good for it, and every bad thing that you do, you receive bad for it, then why does the Holy Quran talk about ihbat? So in other words, you commit an act and at the same time you do good things and at the same time you get those good things get erased as though they never happened, as though they got annulled or cancelled out. Is that fair? And the opposite, you do bad actions and then you ask forgiveness and it's as though those actions never took place. Or you have good actions and you have bad actions, but maybe not enough. And then intercession comes, and then suddenly you're good enough. You're included in the intercession. So how do these topics relate to the topic of divine justice and the afterlife? Inshallah, this is towards the end of the series. We'll come back to that. And yeah, so there's a comment here that the Holy Quran talks about وَلَا أُقْسِمُ بِالنَّفْسِ اللَّوَامِ in Surah Al-Qiyamah لَا أُقْسِمُ بِالْيَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ وَلَا أُقْسِمُ بِالنَّفْسِ اللَّوَامِ Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala is swearing by one of our faculties which is the faculty that makes you blame yourself and feel guilty. The Holy Quran refers to this and there are entire books written about this notion of or this faculty of Al-Nafsi Al-Lawamah when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by it, it's because it's something that He has put in you. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by it, it's something important and definitely with intent, with purpose, with a function that is crucial and important for us. So inshallah, ahsantum, whoever wrote that comment, thank you very much. Inshallah, we'll come back to this topic in, in more depth. It's much more an akhlaqi topic. But uh, the question is, I think, of the utmost importance. Inshallah, we'll dedicate at least one lecture to it, if, if not more. Very important topic. Thank you for the question. Any questions or concerns here? Yeah. Um, yeah, so either either last lecture or the one before it, we talked about how the Qur'an uh, shows the possibility or the probability of um, the resurrection um, because uh, it's answering when people say uh, it's unlikely. I don't have proof, but it's unlikely. So it's showing that it's likely and it's probable too. Uh, it's, it's possible and it's probable in fact. Um, but when it did that, it, it relied um, on mostly on stories that we only get from the Quran. Um, of course, we've established that the Quran is reliable. But for me, there's no difference between this and the Quran just saying uh, there's resurrection because I said so. So. 
um, in our time when we don't have a separate source, may maybe at that time they already believed in all of these stories, but in our time, could we really say that this is a proof for us? Or no. Was it just for them? For them and for us if we believe. So this is, you know, it's an accumulation of, of uh, proofs. So the question is, we said in the logic of the argumentation that the Holy Quran is presenting, we said the Holy Quran begins by saying, you have no proof that there is no afterlife. And the most you could claim is that it's very unlikely that there is a resurrection and an afterlife. And so the Quran himself, itself, presents phenomena and cases and stories which are supposed to dismantle the idea of unlikelihood, that it's not probable, to establish the opposite, that in fact it's very probable. We began by the first example, even if you put all those stories aside, we said the first example is the natural world. In the natural world, that, is, that should be enough to show that not only is it likely, it's actually happening, that things go dead, things die, and then they come back to life. And we went through the verses of the Quran that talked about that. So we said in general the whole, you know, uh, plant world for instance, and the Quran en emphasizes a lot, or it talks about the land that once you see it completely dry and dead, dry, empty and dead. And then when the water comes on it, it swells and stirs, and then every kind of plant and vegetation comes out of it. So it was dead. It comes back to life and actually goes back to death, to being dead. Right? That's the, the seasons. And the whole Quran emphasizes this again and again. So, and then when you combine that with the other verses that we, we gave, which we did not repeat there, about sleep and what happens to us, these are examples that, even if I don't want to go towards those other stories, if I want to reject them, I don't know them, those Arabs believed in them. And they were surrounded by people who believed in them, the people of the book. The, as we said, the uh, sleepers of the cave, they believed in, uh, in Christianity. It happened after Christianity. And Prophet Isa السلام, or Prophet Ibrahim السلام, and their stories, they're mentioned in the Old Testament and they know them. So many of the people in that world, to them this is not new. But even if we put all of that aside, the first group of verses that we gave to remove the idea that it's unlikely, it's, well, then you're failing to study the world in which you live, which is just the natural order of things. Okay? So, and I agree with you, at a more technical level, these are different arguments, but the type of argument is the same. That this is a scriptural argument, that the Holy Quran says, you believe it because I said so. And inshallah, we're going to come back to that. We haven't done that yet. Okay, this is the next, these are the arguments that the Holy Quran is going to present. And we're only going to present one of them, that is of that. And even that is semi-scriptural, and the rest is rational. And we're going to see that, that's why we said the verses of the Quran, they have a rational component, they're, they're, they're presenting an argument, but it is in the form of scripture. So you have both, and inshallah, we're going to see those. But I agree with you, yes. So you can't just use, if someone is going to reject the Holy Qur'an as a scripture from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they don't rely on any other scriptures, let's say a materialist from today, the sleepers and the cave story is not going to be, you know, acceptable to them, right? So, yeah. Uh, uh, sir, 
events of uh, Nabila Isa Islam being born in Saudi Qadir. Um, I don't know how history works, but is that like a pivotal in history as well, or is it just like to, from what we know from Islam or from Christianity? Or the Very quickly, um, this has layers. There are those who claim that Prophet Isa did not even exist as a man in history. And then there are those who say that he existed, but the, the version that we got of him is distorted. But he was a normal man. And so they come up with all sorts of stories, all of them going back to saying that he had a father. He was just not known. But Mary was his mother, and that's it. It's as simple as that. And of course, you have the Christian world and those who believe in their scripture who say, no, he was actually born in a miraculous way, as we do. Yeah. Does that answer? Yeah. Okay. I think the, the Prophet Muhammad is the only one that can be shown historically. Is that right? Historically, as in what? Like, uh, that he existed? That he existed. There is a claim that Prophet Isa did not exist. Um, I think historically there are also books to show that historically he existed. It's, it's a very kind of, uh, they, they call it a trope. In, in humanities where, you know, there's a pattern and you keep reapplying the pattern. In, in ancient history, they did that with, with Homer. So Greek uh, literature, Greek mythology, Greek poetry was written by Homer. So later they said, there is no Homer. Homer is simply the name they gave to all of the authors. There's a lot of authors each of them coming up with a piece of literature, poetry, Greek poetry, that when they put them together, it's this Odyssey, it's the Iliad. And we call that author Homer. That same trope, that same way of thinking was then applied to, so it's a way of just simply attacking, in this case, Christianity. So you attack it at the root, and you say the whole idea of your Jesus, Jesus did not even exist. This is an idea that was created later. So, of course, on the other side, you have the scholars who establish, they think, that's why I, I don't want to claim here one way or another. Okay? But they claim, those authors claim, that yes, there is a way to prove historically the existence of Jesus. And that's why there is currently, like, the biggest piece of physical evidence of the existence of Jesus is in Israel nowadays, in uh, in Palestine, in the uh, church, um, th there is a tomb inside of which there is a type of a cover or a blanket. Which church is that? The Holy Sepulchre. If you look up the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you will see that there is a box that contains a covering. They say that that covering was on the body of Isa And there's a whole lot of work on did it or did it not. And they keep doing all sorts of MRIs and X-ray scans and so on and so forth to see if it was on someone, who was it, and who is inside, and is there a body right now in it or not, and so on and so forth. In any case, that's why I'm saying I understand what you're saying, that he's the only prophet that could be historically proven. It depends what historically means to you. Yeah. 
not going to add anything more to that. Any other questions, concerns, comments? We're good? Okay. One question that I would have for you is to see if there's any highlights to you from the series up to this point, from the beginning until now. What would you say are the highlights to you? Something that's more practical or useful or eye-opening or... Because that gives me an idea of where to put more energy and where to maybe put less. Is there anything that jumps at you from the whole series until now? For me, it was definitely when you discussed uh, proof for the existence of God. Because before that, um, I was always thinking that God is either something you believe in or you don't, you have faith in, or you don't. I didn't think there was like a logical proof for it. And um, early on when you were saying we're going to get to the proof for God, I was thinking, like, well, what are you going to say? Because I didn't think it was possible to bring logical arguments for the existence for the existence of God. So that was the most eye-opening for me. I didn't know that type of um, um, logic existed. That type of foundation, I didn't know that existed. So that was the most... Um, that was the biggest thing that popped up for me. Okay. So that's, uh, thank you very much, Ali. So you went the entire series. Uh, I referred more to, I was, I meant more the Afterlife series. Okay. Uh, but that's, that's very good too. Uh, I have a couple of uh, comments here. One of them is distinguishing between death and ceasing to exist. I think that's what, what is meant here which is definitely something very important to keep in mind. This is a fallacy, right? They equate dying with non-existing, which is absolutely not the case. Uh, the story of the cave and how they are awaiting with Imam Mahdi, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, but that requires a, an explanation. Anything else anyone wants to add? Yes. Uh, I think just with the death series, uh, the most thing was that you die when you sleep, and then you get your soul return when you wake up. I think that was for me was the most uh, moving and more than vivid. So it's not the the biological death. Yes. Right. right? No, no, but yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yes, so Hayat al-Barzakhiyah, there's a comment here about Hayat al-Barzakhiyah. Hayat al-Barzakhiyah we have not talked about yet. Inshallah, we're going to come to the topic. I was debating whether we discuss it at length or not. Uh, this is supposed to be an introductory series, so we're trying to stick to the things that are absolutely necessary and fundamental, and the rest we can cover later, inshallah. Uh, but we can certainly spend a little bit of time talking about Barzakh, inshallah. So we're good. Any other questions, concerns, comments? Okay, so inshallah we see each other next time, as we said, with the uh, rest of the objections uh, that uh, we did not cover, uh, that we did not cover today, that were more Quranic today. Inshallah we're going to cover the rest the next time we meet, and then we go into the Quranic proofs. Uh, themselves, the Holy Quran, presenting its own proofs for establishing the necessity of the afterlife.
وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله الطيبين الطاهرين